on a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. Here we are, approaching Christmas. For some of us, Christmas normally is a very joyful time. For others, well, it's not as joyful. But for all believers, we surely rejoice in the fact that God the Father sent His Son into our world. Joy to the world! The Lord is come. Yes, the Lord Jesus has come into our world. But what will we focus upon in this Christmas season? What should we focus upon? Let me offer a few of my thoughts, especially as they pertain to certain truths found in the Bible, things connected to the birth of Jesus. One thing is this. Let's be clear about the day, about December 25. The Bible never tells us the day, not even the month, when Jesus was born. Most Bible scholars think it probably would have occurred in the springtime. That's the time when shepherds in Near Eastern lands usually were out in their fields with their flocks not in December. So how did we end up with Christmas on December 25? Maybe you already know all this, but if not, here it is. You see, in ancient times, there was a huge pagan festival, a festival celebrated in mid to late December. It was called Saturnalia. In the ancient Roman Empire, it was a wild, crazy festival. Lots of partying, drunkenness, weird customs. It seems that Saturnalia also had something to do with the winter solstice. December 21 is the shortest day for daylight hours, and that's especially seen in northern locations. The longest amount of daylight falls on June 21, the shortest on December 21. After December 21, the daylight hours start getting longer again. Even the ancient pagan peoples noted that. So in late December, they celebrated the seeming return of the sun. They held a festival of lights, rejoicing in the return of the longer daylight. They called it, in the Latin language, Dies Natalis Solis Invicti, translated, the birthday of the unconquerable sun. The birthday of the unconquerable sun, that's S-U-N. In the early 300s AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. In the following years, Christianity became the official religion in the Roman Empire. And the pagan Saturnalia became transformed into Christmas. I mean, on some level, it all seemed to fit together so well. The theme of lights and candles and the unconquerable sun, S-U-N. One description of Jesus in the Old Testament is this, that Jesus is the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness. And of course, Jesus in the New Testament calls himself the light of the world. So December 25 was gradually transformed from Saturnalia into Christmas, a day to celebrate Jesus' birth. Over the generations, the Roman Catholic Church added other traditions, They wrote a special Mass that would be celebrated on December 25, or in many cases, the night before, on Christmas Eve. It was a special Christ Mass. We now pronounce it Christ Mass, or Christmas. By the Middle Ages, the celebration was lengthened to 12 days, the so-called 12 days of Christmas. 
Those days ran from December 25 to January 6. And January 6 then was designated by the Catholic Church as a celebration of the wise men, those men who brought their gifts to Jesus, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Today, January 6 is still a very big celebration in most Latin American countries. El Dia de Reis, the Day of the Kings. The wise men are sometimes referred to as kings. But here's something else we have to be clear about. According to the Bible, the wise men never visited the stable where Jesus was born. The wise men never stood at the manger where he was laid. Only the shepherds visited that manger. You see, by the time the wise men visited, Jesus was no longer a newborn baby. By that time, he was at least six months old or maybe a year or even older. How do we know that? Well, remember the story in the Bible about King Herod? It's recorded in Matthew chapter 2. Herod was threatened by the news that a new king of the Jews was born. That was Herod's title, the king of the Jews, and he was very proud of that title. So Herod wanted to destroy any rival, anyone who was also claiming to be king of the Jews. He wanted to destroy this baby, this child. He issued a decree that all the male children in and around Bethlehem must be killed, all those two years and younger. Based on that reference, most likely then by that time, by the time of the wise men, Jesus was at least six months or 12 months old, maybe older. And by that time, of course, Joseph and Mary had long left the stable. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we're given this information, that the wise men came to the place or the house where Joseph and Mary and Jesus were living by that time. So there were no wise men at the stable seeing the newborn Jesus in that manger. Today, you'll sometimes see that displayed in art or in statues. Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus with shepherds and the wise men all grouped together. Well, it's just wrong. According to the Bible, those were completely different events. Here's something even more important, something we should be especially clear about, that when we think about Jesus, our focus shouldn't really be upon his birth. No. You see, Jesus' main purpose was to reveal himself as a grown man, as an adult man. That's when the Bible account starts to focus on Jesus, after John the Baptist was crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and then Jesus appeared as a grown man, 30 plus years old. Then Jesus started his first public teaching. He taught about God, about God's will, about the coming of God's kingdom. Then as an adult, he starts to perform his mighty miracles. And those miracles are signs, they're signals that the Old Testament law and prophets were fulfilled. Those miracles indicate that a new messianic age had dawned upon the earth, that things would never be the same again. And within just a year of his public revealing, key events start unfolding very quickly. The Jewish leaders start plotting how they would kill Jesus. And it takes them only 24 to 30 months for them to accomplish their plot. And by that time also, the majority of the Jewish people had rejected their Messiah. In fact, at the end, they cried out for Jesus' death. They were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Later, the apostle Peter puts his focus on those very events, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection three days later. In Peter's first sermon, he preaches to a large Jewish crowd located in the main city of Jerusalem. 
It had been only a week and a half after Jesus was executed on that cross and raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, his sermon is recorded. Peter says this to the crowd, Listen up, everyone. This Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Yes, Peter knows the people right there were the ones calling out for Jesus' death, and the leaders of the Jews plotted it. But, says Peter, it all occurred according to God's set purpose, according to God's foreknowledge. Everything occurred according to God's plan. Now, obviously, for Jesus to die, he had to be born. So the Bible rightly mentions Jesus' birth. Indeed, it does. But the heart of God's plan was for Jesus to reveal himself as an adult, to teach about God, to tell people to repent of their sin, to urge them to trust in him. The heart of God's plan was that Jesus, in those months and years, would then be rejected, a man of sorrows, who would suffer not only in his death, but suffered through his life. And ultimately, this Jesus would be killed on that cross and then raised up on the third day and then go back to heaven to take his place at the right hand of God the Father. You see, Peter's sermon on that day doesn't even mention Jesus' birth because, you see, it's really all about Jesus' life and his death. It's all about Jesus' life and death and his resurrection and his return to heaven. So Peter's sermon in Acts 2 ends with these words, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And to that, the people of the Jewish crowd responded, What then must we do? And Peter basically tells them, Repent of your sin, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, and as a sign of that, be baptized. So let's be clear about it. It's not about a cute and cuddly baby. It's not even that much about Mary and Joseph. Not much about the shepherds or the wise men either. It's actually mostly about God's plan for Jesus to die. To die and be raised from the dead and to be exalted in heaven. That we, hearing that good news, trusting in Jesus, may know the forgiveness of our sins. Let's dig a bit deeper. You know, in the Bible, we're given four accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Those are the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the four Gospels. That's a bit confusing, isn't it? Because the Gospel means the good news about Jesus. But when we refer to the four Gospels, we really mean there are four accounts of it, four accounts of this good news about Jesus found in the Bible. Now, only two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, have anything at all to say about Jesus' birth. All four Gospels give detailed descriptions of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead, but only two of the Gospels have anything at all to say about Jesus' birth. Mark and John skip over it completely. And Matthew? How many details does Matthew give us about Jesus' birth? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, look carefully, you'll find only seven short verses about the details of Jesus' birth. 
And that compares to the 80 verses that Matthew writes prior to that about Jesus' genealogy, about his ancient ancestors, about his relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the birth of their miracle baby, John. 80 verses about all of that compared to only 7 verses about Jesus' birth. That should tell us something. And what about the Gospel of Luke? Well, Luke does tell us a bit more. He writes about the shepherds and the angels in the night sky. And of the four gospel writers, only Luke informs us about that stable in Bethlehem and about Jesus laid in the manger and about the shepherds visiting that night. That information is important. Every detail in the Bible is important. But compared to what Luke tells us later about Jesus' life in his 30s, And in those three, three and a half short years of his public ministry, well, there's just no comparison. Altogether, Luke writes 20 verses about Jesus' birth. And in those 20 verses, he actually says more about the shepherds and the angels than he says specifically about the baby Jesus or about Mary. Compare that to Luke's description about Jesus' death. If you look at the end of his gospel account, you'll find Luke giving a whole chapter about the details of Jesus' death. And it's a long chapter, 56 verses. And that's followed by another very long chapter about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Don't get lost in those details. Here's my main point. In the Bible, the emphasis, the focus, is upon Jesus' life, his adult life and about his death and his resurrection from the dead. The focus is not upon his birth. It's the same thing in the rest of the New Testament. Look through the writings of the Apostle Paul. Altogether, Paul wrote 13 letters. Yet he never once focuses on Jesus' birth. Oh, he makes a few general references about Jesus coming into our world. But Paul makes no mention whatsoever of the Virgin Mary by name nor of Joseph, no mention of Bethlehem or the stable or the manger or the shepherds or the wise men, not even once. But Paul writes extensively about Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead. Why is that? Well, again, it's because those events are at the very heart of God's plan, that Jesus was born to die and then to be raised from the dead, and then to be exalted in heaven as king of kings. So why then today is there so much emphasis on Jesus' birth? Well, I think part of the answer is this. Here in the Western world, at least, we're given all those days off from school and work. All of us are given extended vacation days. We aren't given days off to reflect on Jesus' death. I mean, who gets a week? to celebrate Jesus' death or his resurrection or his return back to heaven. Well, yes, here in Canada, Good Friday is an official holiday. It's a day off from school and work. But there are no big public celebrations, no big remembrances of why Jesus died on the cross. There's no going caroling in the springtime in connection with Good Friday and Easter. The radio stations don't play hymns about Jesus' crucifixion, like, O sacred head now wounded, or When I survey the wondrous cross. As you're walking through the stores and in the shopping malls, you won't hear the Easter anthem, Christ the Lord is risen today. Churches will do that, but not out in our culture. The most our culture will do is collect some Easter eggs, 
put on big springtime parades like the one that Macy puts on every year and bring out new clothing fashions for the springtime. So you see, I think it's really the culture around us that impacts us in the church. The culture around us puts so much more emphasis on Christmas than on Good Friday. It focuses more on Jesus' birth than on his death and resurrection. Whereas in the Bible, it's just the opposite. And why would that be? I think there's actually a deeper reason for this. Look, there's really nothing offensive about a baby's birth. There's nothing that confronts us when we think of a manger scene or shepherds or wise men. In fact, just the opposite. There's something sweet about it all. Everything is bathed in soft light, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. It's perfect for Hallmark greeting cards and for TV specials. But most people are offended. They're deeply offended by a bloody cross. They're offended by a suffering Savior, especially when the reason for all that blood and suffering is this, that Jesus' death was the price to be paid for our sins, that God shows his wrath against us because of our sins, that God's justice must be satisfied, that Jesus had to be that Lamb of God, that slaughtered, sacrificed Lamb, slaughtered for our sins. That causes a big negative reaction, a very strong reaction from some. Who, me, a sinner? Do I need someone dying for me? Look, I think I'm a pretty good person. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm mostly good, mostly decent, and I even pray sometimes. I'm surely not as bad as many other people. They might go on to say, And tell me, Christian, what kind of God do you really believe in? Do you believe in the God of Good Friday and of a bloody cross, a suffering Savior, and a miracle of a body being returned back to life? Well, yes, we do. And I think we as believers have to be honest about this. I mean, I think sometimes as believers, we even prefer to think of a grandfatherly kind of God. A God like someone's grandfather who chuckles at his grandchildren's misbehavior. A grandfather who might go, tisk tisk, but he would never dare punish anyone. We prefer that kind of God. Again, a God of soft lights and cuddly babies and adoring shepherds. But we go on to read the main point of the gospel account. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all focus on the scene of the cross and of Jesus despised and rejected, of Jesus wounded and bleeding, Jesus on the cross crying out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is our God, the God of justice, the God of righteousness, the God who demands payment for our sin and of our Savior, Jesus, who paid for our sin by his death, and who was raised from the dead for our justification. So later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, he writes about the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. And when you think of it, it really is something quite offensive. Here's what Paul says about the offense of the cross in another place. Let me read the complete section from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach and we talk about Jesus Christ crucified. That's our focus. It must be our focus also for Christmas. And doesn't that turn everything upside down? Well, maybe not everything, but many things. And that's one reason we're doing this podcast. We're on a mission. And we're called to that mission. All believers are called in some way. You see, the good news of Jesus, suffering and dying, being resurrected and exalted to heaven, and coming again someday on the clouds of glory, that turns almost everything upside down, even how we think about Christmas. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down.